Hi, and welcome to the Soul on Fire Bible Study Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Justin. Get ready to let God's consuming flame take hold of your life. Join us as we follow along with the Chapel High School Ministries Sunday Night Bible Study in the Book of John. Each week we'll dive deeper into another chapter and demonstrate how God speaks to us all through His Word. Hey everybody, today we're going over chapter 8. Whoop whoop! Time to get excited to talk about Jesus. Alright, so I'm going to go ahead right in and start reading. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. All right, so Justin, what do you have for this section? As I'm first looking at this section... I feel like we have to remember where we left off in the last chapter in John 7. Jesus has just called out the Pharisees in the temple for their hypocrisy and declared himself the living water to be worshipped at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Pharisees are mad. They grumbled within themselves that at least all the Pharisees were unified on this issue. And when they did that, Nicodemus spoke up and they were so shaken and angry that they claim that God didn't make any prophets from Galilee, when these teachers of the law should have known the prophet Jonah. In this chapter, we see the Pharisees seek out Jesus with claims against this woman that they bring. First, there are ways to deal with this in the courts from within the Jewish religion. Instead, they bring her to Jesus. Second, they accuse her of adultery. They say that she was caught in the act. Adultery is one of those sins isn't really done by one person. Mm -hmm. So where's the other person in this? This is an attempted trap by the irked Pharisees from the last chapter. Jewish custom that's written about in Leviticus 20.10 would call for execution of both, while Roman law states that execution cannot take place without Roman approval. In this way, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus by giving him no good answer. Yeah, either the people will be upset because he's following Roman law or they can report him to the Roman government or the opposite. If he doesn't do anything and he just lets her go, what are the people going to say? They're going to say that he's ignoring their laws and customs and traditions. I thought you also mentioned the same thing. Where was the fella then? This could point to a few things. First of all, if this was staged to trap Jesus... Was the man set free? I mean, was this even a real situation? We'll find out in just a little bit. But the Pharisees seemed definitely more concerned with trapping him than they even do about the man and woman's sin, if this were even true. They might have been set on humiliating this woman because they could have held her in custody while they talked to Jesus, but rather they put her in front of the crowd. So she's just been caught in the act. There is some question at this point as to whether or not she is fully covered up. We don't know. If they were shaming her, maybe not. 
But then it really is striking to me that in verse four, they use the term teacher. Yet remember, they are trying to trick him in front of the big group of people. So in my study notes, it says to reference Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. It says this, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Suppose a man meets a young woman, a virgin who is engaged to be married, and he has sexual intercourse with her. If this happens within a town, you must take both of them to the gates of that town and stone them to death. The woman is guilty because she did not scream for help. The man must die because he violated another man's wife. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you. So as we see in this verse, if Jesus would have suggested that they not stone her or they do something else, people would have accused him of not following their customs. So something stands out to me as a theme here. Even though people want to say some sin is worse than others, the result of all sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, aka the payment for sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So just keep this in mind as we go on. Also, what is Jesus writing? I would really have loved to know. It's obvious that he's not going to participate. And I think that that's the whole point. They're jeering and jeering and trying to get him to give an answer. And he's just not willing to participate in this big show they're trying to push him into you know they're trying to make this a big production in front of this big crowd to discredit him but it's really going to backfire when he says what he says and just the fact that he's not going to be drawn into it as we definitely already know Jesus is God so he knew this was a trap and he can see their heart content it's going to make a big difference here I love reading these lines in verses six through eight Jesus is so perfect in his tactfulness Imagine these people are all fired up. They're expecting a quick outcome to satisfy them. And Jesus just squats down and starts drawing with his finger in the dirt as if they're not there. Talk about wonder. I wonder what he was drawing, like you said. The Pharisees just keep standing there. I wonder what their faces looked like. They're demanding an answer. He stands up and he delivers the perfect line that only God himself could come up with to disarm the argument, and stoops down again, writing in the dirt. This makes me laugh. It must have been such a reversal for the Pharisees so fast. So if we pick up at verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. When I hear this part, I think this is the ouch moment. His response here completely disarms them. He speaks truth and love just as he tells us to do, even when the truth hurts. And the truth is no one is sinless. What stood out to me here is that the oldest of the priests realized that their game had been lost first. Maybe their heart was pricked first and they turned away, later followed by the younger ones. And I wonder how many priests came to believe Jesus in these moments or if any of them were convinced at all. 
if they just turned away, were they still set in their pride? Did did they just think, wow, he's bested us another day? Or did they take any of those words to heart? Then I love how Jesus asked the question almost rhetorically, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Jesus was the only one who could have condemned her because he was sinless, but he did not. He offered her mercy and she stayed even after her accusers left, showing that she was likely repentive, sorry for her sin, willing to accept punishment even. This whole thing reminds me of John 3.17, which we've already read and we'll keep repeating over and over because it just rings so true. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus continues to lead by example by practicing what he preaches. And I just love that. Another practical application for this section is that when Jesus is being trapped, he just decides not to engage. I think that's really poignant because many times as Christians, someone will ask us a question and it's not because they genuinely want to know the answer. It's to try to trap you in something that they think is politically incorrect or something that might paint you as a Christian in a bad light. Just remember, if you don't have the answer to their question, it's okay to say, I don't have the answer to that right now. You don't always have to engage. Okay, so to be perfectly honest, I looked at this section of my notes at a glance and thought, wait a minute, what did I write here? But it does tie in. So looking at the section as a whole, this passage reminded me of the message of faithfulness throughout the Bible. Like this woman who's not faithful to her husband, the nation of Israel is compared to a whore at times in the Bible. In Ezekiel 23, verse 4, And in the whole chapter in general, Jerusalem is compared to a whore. The name is very hard to pronounce. I think it's Oholiba. But not because of physical adultery among the people. It's because of their unfaithfulness to their God. And they chased after cults and cultures of other nations. P.S. Did you ever notice that the word cult is in the word culture? Food for thought. They were abandoning their faith and not trusting in God who was constantly having to punish them for their sin, making their relation with him strained and distant. All the while, God remained the same. They were doing it to themselves. Now think about the woman and the Pharisees. They were so quick to punish her while they themselves in their hearts were not being faithful to God. This is the great irony here. So the last thought I have is that we are quick to judge others rather than looking in our own hearts. Jesus says it here, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. We're all guilty of not being faithful to God. We ourselves are filled with sin, trying to satisfy our sinful lust with everything but God at times. This is the point of Jesus. Without his sacrifice, without the Holy Spirit, how can we remain sinless? We can't. Thankfully, we don't have to be sinless, but we can be blameless. We're about to move on to the next section now. There is a footnote that mentions that most ancient Greek manuscripts actually do not include John 7 verse 53 through chapter 8 verse 11. That whole story is not included. This makes me wonder why is this even included in the Bible at all if it's not in many of the ancient Greek manuscripts? When I confront topics about this, 
like when I confront most topics in life, I tend to ask the question, how does this glorify Jesus? How does this bring the message to Jesus? And does it? If this message distracts you from Jesus, then look at this footnote and move past it. If this passage helps you connect with Christ through a relationship spiritually with him, that is why it is here in the Bible. Moving on, we're picking up in verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The father who sent me is with me. Your own law says if two people agree about something, their witness is acceptable as fact. I am one witness and my father who sent me is the other. Where is your father? They asked. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. That is verses 12 through 20. When I begin to break down this section, verse 12, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Starting back in chapter 1, verse 5 of John, John uses light as a description of Jesus throughout his gospel. When we look at verse 14, Jesus makes it clear that he can testify on his own behalf because he and the Father make two witnesses. The Pharisees tried to dispute what they cannot know. Jesus points out that they did not know him or his origin. They did not take interest in him until he began drawing crowds later in his life. When I look at 15, it reminds me of John 3.17, as Katie had mentioned earlier. God gave Jesus the power to judge. He could condemn. But Jesus chose the plan that has been there from the start, that he would pay for our sins so that he doesn't judge us. And then finally in 19, Jesus stresses that we only know God through him. A deeper look at how Jesus is our bridge to God. We can also look back at chapter 1 of John, where we find that Jesus is the word. We find God through Jesus, and we find Jesus through the Bible. When I start at the beginning of this little section here, as Jesus talks about being the light of the world, starting at verse 12, this part is like a metaphor, light versus darkness or light in darkness. So in this verse, Jesus has the I am statement that further proves he's the Messiah by fulfilling the prophecy that's talked about in Isaiah chapter nine. Personally, I encourage you to read the whole chapter You'll be like, oh my word, I see how all of this refers to Jesus, and it's awesome. And it's only based on what we've currently studied in John 1 through 8, so that's really cool. But here is where he talks about the light. The section is titled, in Isaiah, Hope in the Messiah. 
I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. I'm also going to read Isaiah 42 verse 6. I the Lord have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them and you will be a light to guide the nations. There are many more references like this one, but these are a few. I don't know about you, but I always love checking the source to see if something is true, like a prophecy is fulfilled here or there. It's also interesting that the I am statement is the second one that he makes, the first one was, I am the bread of life. But something that I think is super interesting here that would be very easy to overlook is that in the last chapter, we just started looking at the festival of shelters or the festival of booths. And we knew that there was a component about living water. But if you look into it, there's actually a component about light as well. I'm going to paraphrase some of this information that I found from research, but basically each afternoon during this festival, the people who had traveled a long distance for the festival, people who wanted to participate and the priests gathered in the court of the women. They would illuminate four large oil lamps and it was this light that was so bright it would penetrate every courtyard in Jerusalem. The women were allowed to watch the festivities, but the men would dance before the oil lamps with burning torches in their hands, singing and praising God. They played on harps and lyres, lots of instruments. And basically, it symbolized two things. The first thing was the light of all lights, visible presence of God that filled the first temple. And then here's where it gets really good. The second reason was the great light who would soon come and bring light to those who were spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness. What? So Jesus, think about this again. It's one of those wow moments you would have never caught if you don't look into the history. Jesus, during this festival, as they're celebrating... And they have the living water from the spring. They have these torches with oil and remembrances and thankful for God's presence. And again, the whole festival points to him. So he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Oh, it's amazing. It gives me goosebumps. Going forward here, I have a breakdown summarizing each of these little verse clumps. He says, I am the light of the world, which we know he's talking about salvation and redemption here. He is the light that leads to life. He says, if you follow me, 
Jesus's followers believed he was the son of God and the Messiah, and they did what he did. That's how you know if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to heed his teachings and do what he does. In verse three, you won't have to walk in darkness, darkness being this sinful world. It's a representation. It's a metaphor. Verse four, because you will have the light that leads to life. You will, meaning future tense, meaning after his death. The light we know is referring to salvation and redemption, which leads to life. This could also be referring to the fact that we will have the Holy Spirit because it's through God alone that we can do any good works. Further note, we are called to reflect this light. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Okay, jumping down to verse 13. The Pharisees try again to discredit Jesus, which never seems to work out well for them, especially publicly by saying he has no witnesses to him being the Messiah. But remember after Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he was being harassed by the Jewish leaders at the time and listed witnesses, his signs and miracles, the scripture in the Old Testament, John the Baptist, God himself, not to mention all of the examples we've seen thus far of divine knowledge and the ability for him to go into the temple and teach without any formal schooling. It's amazing. Verse 15, human's earthly judgment versus God's judgment. Jesus is making it clear that the reasons that they judge are based on their own selfish thoughts, wants, and desires. Think about the law at this time. It had been heavily added to, and the new rules were not based on God's word or scripture. Jesus does not judge with an earthly perspective, which could be what he means by, I do not judge, or it could be referring to carrying out judgment. As we know, he came to save the world, not to condemn the world. We already talked about that in John three seventeen. Then in verse 18, Jesus says he and his father are both witnesses. The Pharisees would likely not accept any more witnesses, even if he did bring it up. In this section, Jesus states who he is, then upon objections, points out the flawed logic of the Pharisees. Then in verse 19, where they say, where is your father? They asked. They don't recognize Jesus as the son of God because they don't know God. They think they do because remember, they thought that the way to connect with God was to follow the law to a T. And this would be very insulting to them. You have dedicated your life to studying God's law and yet you do not know who God is. And they were in the temple when he said it in front of a bunch of people. Ouch. That's the ouch moment right there. In verse 20, he says, my time has not yet come. Later in John chapter 10, verse 18, we will see Jesus say, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. This is yet another example of how no harm came to Jesus until the appointed time, making it extremely abundantly clear that they could only harm him, 
kill him if he allowed it to happen. No other way. It's not that Jesus was escaping or he was just eluding them or he was really kind of crafty at getting away. He's literally in the middle of the temple right now and they couldn't touch him until he allowed it to happen. Moving on to a new section, the unbelieving people warned. That is the heading here. We're starting at verse 21. Later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean? You cannot come where I am going. Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me. For I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Okay, if we head back up to the top, verse 21. Obvious question to some, where is he going? Why can't they follow him? The English Standard Version Study Bible answers that very well. Heaven in the presence of the Father. Why can't they follow? They do not believe in him. So as we go down to 23, Jesus once again shows a difference in where people are. He notes that he's not of this world. Just as we who are in Jesus are not of this world, we see truth in this world through Jesus. Yeah, he says here, he's from above heaven, we are from below or this world. If we do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's son, we are not God's children. And if we're not God's children, we belong to this world, which is full of the darkness and sin that he spoke of in verse 12. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 in the NLT version, it says, We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. People will say they don't believe in anything, but by default, if you do not belong to God, you belong to this world. Jesus says it. You belong to this world. I do not. Oof. There's a couple of ouch moments in this. He's speaking truth. Then in 24, many people try to overcomplicate salvation. How many times have we heard from the mouth of Jesus in just eight chapters of this book? All that is needed is belief in him. Our worth is not measured by deeds. It's not measured by failures. We can't add worth by doing good. We can't have damaged worth by sin, failure, shame, baggage. We are all only able to derive worth from one thing, and that is do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that his sacrifice on the cross paid for our sin 
or do we not believe that? Yeah, that's a great way to summarize these past couple chapters and this message that he talks about here in this little section. If we reread verse 24, that is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. I thought it was interesting. The NIV version points out that Jesus echoes God's affirmation about himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which remember is one of the first five books of the Bible. These same words are echoed in the verse where it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I got a little bit curious about this and read chapter 3, 11 through 22, and a bit of chapter 4, and it made me a little bit excited because the symbolism here is really fantastic, and if I wouldn't have kind of gotten off on a rabbit trail, I never would have found it. To summarize those verses, Moses has noticed a bush on fire, but the bush itself is not being consumed by the flames. Sound familiar? To summarize, God tells Moses, I am sending you to lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Moses protests and says, what if they ask who sent me and say, what is his name? That's when God uses the I am statement. God talks about how he will deliver them into a land of milk and honey. God says to take the elders, go to the king of Egypt and ask that they may take, get this, get this, a three day journey into the wilderness to make sacrifices to the Lord. Okay, now compare everything to what Jesus is talking about in these two sections in John 8. Here's the comparison. First of all, Moses is told to lead the people out of Egypt. Jesus says, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. God speaks to Moses as a light or a fire. Jesus here says, I am the light of the world. God says, say I am sent you to Moses. Jesus says in John 8 verse 24, I am who I claim to be. God's words coming out of his mouth. Going back to Moses, they're going to be delivered into a land of milk and honey. In John chapter 8 verse 12, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Deliverance from sins. Awesome. Going back to Moses, ask to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. Spoiler alert, Jesus will be the sacrifice for sins and three days later, he will rise again victorious. God frees the Israelites from slavery. Jesus frees us from our sin debts, free from the power of sin. I thought that the symbolism in this section was amazing. I recently heard someone say, as many have said it before, that the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to Jesus. If you read the Old Testament again, you're going to find lots of symbolism just like this. Then regarding verse 28, where it says, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. He uses the I am statement again. The phrase lifted up can have two meanings. 
First of all, literally, he will be raised up on a cross and crucified. And then he will be lifted up, meaning he'll rise again from the dead. Then verse 30, many who heard him believed. Jesus' words are so powerful. They were then and they still are now. I think it's really moving to think about that. We read this passage. We look at the symbolism. We go through the context of what he's saying. We know that he has witnesses. We know that some of these people have traveled here from a long way for the festival. Some of them are locals. But amidst all those people, based on the words he says here, many of them believed. I think that's wonderful. I think it's also important to remember that his words are still powerful right now. These same chapters, these same words that he speaks can speak to our heart in the exact same way. Now we're going to read verses 31 through verses 38 or verse 38. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there is no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. What do you have, Justin? The biggest note that I wrote about this passage was, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. Wow. It just... John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, in verse 32, you've got it in John 14, 6, it says, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's, first of all, use context clues to answer the question, what is the truth? What is he speaking of? Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and the Pharisees try to discredit him and call him a liar. He has been saying that his claims are valid, and the truth will set you free. The NIV's study Bible mentions freedom from sin, not ignorance, and the ESV study Bible mentions from the guilt and enslaving power of sin. That's a very common expression, the truth will set you free. But it's usually in the context of don't hide your sin like a secret, you know, confess and you'll feel better. You won't feel so guilty about the secret being hidden anymore. Anytime you see the word, the truth, the life, the way, you can always replace that with Jesus and it will have an impactful meaning on you. Exactly. If you take the phrase and you will know truth and the truth will set you free, you can replace the word truth with Jesus. And it would read, and you will know Jesus and Jesus will set you free. Jesus only speaks truth. So morality through Jesus, a life trusting in him will set you free. Not just confession like secular morality implies. If we circle back to verse 
31. An interesting point here that the NIV version mentions is that the term believed seems to be profession of faith. Their words here show that they're not true believers, but there is a distinguisher between the two. We spoke back in John 3 about born again as Jesus speaks with Nicodemus. Here in verse 33, the idea of being born again means that their natural birth means nothing. The people's claim to be descendants of Abraham means nothing. If they don't live as Abraham did and serve God, then as Jesus points out, they're not following the doctrine that Abraham followed. When I read verse 33, I thought these people have completely missed the mark. Just like you're saying, they're talking about physical birth. He's talking about their heritage as descendants through him. Those who believe in him become sons and daughters. He even talks about that in just a minute here. But I also thought when I read that part, they have never been slaves. What are they even talking about? We just were talking about the reference to Moses just a minute ago, and they were in captivity for years and years and years in Egypt. Or the fact that they were being oppressed by the Romans at this exact time in history, not to mention that they had been in captivity under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians. Most importantly, though, that's not even what he's talking about, right? It's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. When I read this, I just think, oh my goodness, some of these people have really missed it. Jesus just beautifully lays out in verses 34 to 36 that though sin is in every man, sin enslaves. Directly off of the topic of slavery for these men, those who are slaves are not considered family. Jesus makes the distinction of in sin and not in sin. All humans are in sin. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, as Katie mentioned before, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. When Jesus says that a slave is not part of the family, and that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, God made everyone. He made them to be family. He did not make them to be in sin. All people are made for God. 36 then is so powerful. If the Son sets you free, you are truly free. To add to that, if we think practically about this phrase too, everyone who sins is a slave. These people here, they say, we're not slaves to anyone. If someone is struggling with an addiction, are they a slave to their addiction? If someone who's ashamed of their past, are they a slave to guilt? Is someone who wants satisfaction a slave to their desires? And the answer is yes. The NIV study Bible says that we are a slave to sin because sinners cannot break free by their own strength. Christians have changed masters. Whereas they were formerly slaves to sin, now they become slaves or willing servants to righteousness. In Romans 6 verse 18, it says, Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. 
basically you're going to continue on in righteous living. You'll be committed to it like a slave serving a master, but you've been set free from the pain and guilt of this life. The NIV also mentions that being unable to escape from sinful patterns of conduct is impossible without Jesus's help. In verse 36, it says, free from a life of guilt and the life-controlling power of sin. The KJV version has a little footnote about verses 30 through 36. It says, Jesus identifies the true disciples as those who, number one, believe in him, which is mentioned in verse 30. Number two, continued in his word, which is mentioned in verse 31. And unlike the Jews in verses 37, 43, 47, they will be freed from sin by the truth. They will not be sinless, but blameless, free from the power of sin. I love this phrase. How many times have I been confronted with someone who says, you Christians think you're perfect? No, the exact opposite. I know I'm not perfect. Christians know or they should know they're not perfect. But because of Jesus, they can be blameless. That is so powerful. I love it. Okay, so we're going to continue on starting in verse 39. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Verse 42, Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I am saying? It's because you can't even hear me for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Going back a little bit, the Jews believed that they had the exclusive right to connect with God just by being born into the nation of Israel. But as Jesus has reminded us many times, God doesn't want rule following and traditions without relationship. Physical birth means nothing. Born rich, born poor doesn't mean anything. Spiritual birth is all that matters. Speaking to verses 39 through 40, the ESV study Bible, the English Standard Version footnote refers or it references Genesis 15 verse 6 to these verses. Here's what it says. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. To give some context, one verse earlier, God told Abraham that he would have so many children, a great nation. God promised him big things and Abraham had faith that God would do what he said. Back to our example, 
Jesus is having to tell them that he speaks truth as he counters their lies and unbelief. In verse 43, they were convinced of their own misconceptions. They couldn't hear him. Their hearts were closed. They were unwilling to accept. In verse 44, I have the ouch comment. He was a murderer from the beginning. Justin, do you have anything for this section before I go into this part? I completely agree with you about the people are just unable to understand that their birth doesn't matter despite the fact that all men are born with sin. Here they attempt to claim Abraham, but Jesus makes clear they may share the bloodline, but they do not do as Abraham did. By ideology, they follow Satan, as Jesus points out. He calls him a murderer from the beginning. It's such a profound point. Yes, Satan influenced Cain to murder Abel. But God instructed Adam and Eve before original sin that eating from the tree would cause death. Satan convinced Eve it would not. Eating the apple while not causing physical death right there in that moment caused spiritual death and a disconnect from God. A disconnect that isn't given hope until Jesus is coming. Even then, we're not free if we don't accept it from him. Here, Jesus shows that in their thoughts and actions that they plot to kill, as Satan did. In 46, Jesus asks, Who can accuse me of sin? And their silence speaks volumes. But Jesus can ask because he has no sin to weigh him down. It's interesting that you mentioned that part about the Garden of Eden, because those verses in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5, the serpent says to Eve, you won't die, the serpent replies to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The first interaction he has with humankind He convinces Eve to eat the fruit, so he lies to her and tells her that this is something that isn't going to have consequences. It gives her a curse that leads to sin and physical death, spiritual death, affirming exactly what we read right here. We have the history. They, at the time, had this history, yet still so blind. Satan is called the father of lies. There's no truth in him. It stands out to me that this still happens today. He can be, we can be influenced by lies. The things that Satan tells us, we can combat those lies by going to the word of God to find the truth like Jesus just spoke about earlier. In verse 44, there's an awesome footnote in the NIV version I'm going to read for you. It says, you belong to your father, the devil. Jesus warned his Jewish opponents of the reality of Satan's murderous and deceitful influence. Since salvation is from the Jews, Jesus' words do not apply to the Jewish people as a whole. His warning should caution both Gentiles and Jews to follow Abraham's example. It points to determination of will. Their problem is basically spiritual, not intellectual. Being oriented towards Satan, they were bent on murder and eventually would succeed. 
I like that that mentions that Jesus asking the question was more significant than the opponent's failure to answer, just like you pointed out, Justin, in that it showed that Jesus had a perfectly clear conscience. In verse 47, it talks about those knowing God, knowing his voice. This is another ouch moment. Followers of God recognize his voice through Jesus. Here we go, reading 48 to the end. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my father and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count, but it is my father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you, but I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. In verse 48, I asked myself why they called him Samaritan devil. I thought that was really kind of striking. I wasn't sure why they would do that. The NIV commentary suggests it was possibly to suggest he was lax in Jewish observances. No better than a Samaritan, for example. We saw a few chapters back that the Samaritans had combined their faith in God from their lineage with pagan customs and traditions. So this is the same as saying he had a muddled down version of their religion filled with lies, possibly. Or they were just trying to insult him because, you know, they hated the Samaritans. Verse 52, this is enough for the people. They say Abraham and the prophets died. They still aren't understanding the concept of spiritual birth versus physical birth. Another note even on that is if you're only looking at past people and saying it can't get better from here, especially these people who know the Old Testament and know a Messiah is coming, how are you ever going to recognize a Messiah when a Messiah comes? How are you ever going to recognize someone as being greater than Abraham or greater than Moses when that's the only thing that you'll measure people by. In 55, I really enjoyed Jesus's retort when he tells the Pharisees that in respect to God, I know him. And if I said I didn't know him, I'd be as great a liar as you. Ouch. Verse 56 refers to this it says your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming he saw it and was glad many commentaries believe that this is not referring to any one occasion but to Abraham's general joy in the fulfilling of the purposes of God in the Messiah this probably refers to the universal scope of 
Abrahamic covenant. Verse 58, this is the statement that takes them from irritated and loud to aggressive and murderous. Jesus proclaims his deity by declaring he is I am, which we already saw in Exodus is referring directly to God saying he is I am. 59, he gets away, not his time yet. Like we said before, he is not able to be trapped by them. They're not able to harm him because... He isn't going to allow it. It's not time. His death, the harm that will come to him will be for a purpose. I have some of my W's. I like to go over those. Wow, what stood out to me? I really love verse 36. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Love that. Wonder. I wonder how hard it would have been having been told your whole life that you are part of God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham, then to be told that you have to believe in Jesus in order to have a relationship with God. Would they have been unable to see how amazing his signs and wonders were or recognize the divine knowledge or look through an earthly carnal lens, unable to see who Jesus is because of their unrealistic expectations? It's so interesting that the people were divided about this because they're still divided about this to this day. The main point or the why, no one is sinless but Jesus. He's the only one who has the right to condemn, but he doesn't. He shows mercy by saying he is the light of the world who can set us free and give us eternal life here. Who does this show me God is? So incredibly merciful. So merciful. He's the way, the truth, and the life He's reliable. He's faithful. I feel like every single chapter, I could just repeat the same things and just add more and more to the list about who God is. Where can we apply this? So this is just one way we can apply this. As you know, you can find your own W's as you study. Try to apply these things to your own life. One thing I thought about, are we casting the first stone? Thinking about the woman, we can be very quick to judge. Any of us can because we want to feel like we're sinless, but in reality, as Christians, we're not sinless, but we can be blameless. Do we think, though, that the righteousness we're given in Christ gives us the moral high ground to berate others? That's completely not true. We are not sinless through Christ, but blameless. Awesome. Well, hey, this has been a good long episode. We will see you again for nine and ten yeah come back and read about jesus spitting on the ground and then rubbing it in someone's eyes it's gonna be amazing <laughs> bye guys